Please take your Bibles and open them to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews. We're going to continue on in our study beginning in chapter 9, verse 11, all the way through chapter 9 and verse 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28. It was the great hope of the Jewish people that one day their covenant-keeping God would dwell with them personally, visibly, and eternally. It was their desire that the God who took them out of Egypt would be in their midst. That was the promise. That was the, the great hope. And as we know from the Torah, from the first five books of the Old Covenant, the books of Moses, that when God took them out of the land of Egypt, He did so with visible and spectacular signs and wonders. And one of the things that He did was establish Himself in their midst. And this is not the first time, because if we go back into the very beginning, we know that from the dawn of creation, God was with His people. It began with Adam and Eve, when He would walk with them in the cool of the evening. It continued on in the time before the patriarchs when God would reveal himself in a unique and special way to individuals like Job. It carried on after the patriarchs when Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph began to know the God of the covenant and then to the time when Moses was able to go up onto the mountain and receive from him his law to bring back to his people so that they could enter into this covenant relationship. The presence of God was something that they desired. But it's important to remember that the presence of God was also something that they feared. Because the presence of God is not always comforting. In fact, as a sinner, the presence of God can be terrifying. Because the very holiness of God made manifest on the mountain through the thunder and the lightning, through the cloud that enveloped it, sent shockwaves through the people of Israel. In fact, so much so that when they began to see the great glory, the power, and the majesty, and the holiness of God, they asked that Moses would go instead of them to be a mediator for them. The more they became accustomed to the glory of God, the more they realized their own sinfulness and unworthiness. And yet, it is that very contrast of sinfulness and holiness that David writes about when he confesses his own great sin. You see, there were these moments in redemptive history where the Holy Spirit inspired somebody to write something that would clearly communicate the great hope that there would be one day in a sacrifice that would be able to reunite God and man in perfect peace. And we see that in Psalm 51. So before we actually get to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning, I want to take a moment and pause in Psalm 51. It's well known to you. It is the psalm that David wrote when he confessed his sin of adultery and murder. And Psalm 51 begins with these words, and in these words, you're going to see three ways of describing sin, three ways of describing what God did, and three ways of describing why God did it. Three ways to describe sin, three ways to describe what God did, and three ways to describe why he did it. To begin with, you'll notice that 
In Psalm 51, David begins by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. That's the first word for sin, it's transgression. The transgression here is the sin that we are aware of. The fact that we know that we have done something that violates the holy character of God. It's something that causes within us the desire to repent, to make amends. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That's the second word. This is a word that means your particular bent, your particular persuasion, your, your, your particular tendency towards sin, towards wandering. And cleanse me from my sin. Here, a simple word for rebellion, for the natural heart of rebellion that all of us have. He says that I know my transgressions and my sin are ever before me. But there's also more to this because he says there is something from which he is asking God. Notice he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Number one, blot out my transgressions. What do we do with these sins that we're aware of? He says, I want you to blot them out. The word blot out here was to remove a mark, to be able to erase something. He says only God can take that sin and he can make it go away. He can deal with it. The second thing he says is to wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. This bent that I have towards sin, he says wash me. It was a launderer's term. A term that meant to take a stain that's in a piece of cloth and apply a detergent to it and to vigorously work it until that stain was removed. And then finally, he says to cleanse me from my sin. That word cleanse means to restore the relationship. Take away this thing that is between us. So blot out the mark, clean the fabric, and remove what separates us. Restore me. He says, I know that I have sinned. I sin every day. I know that my bent is always towards sin. And I know that I am the one who is in rebellion against your law. But the question that I want to ask myself when I read this is why? What would prompt God to do that? And the answer comes there back in verse 1. Have mercy on me. That's the word for grace. It's an undeserved response from God. It's something we don't earn. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to, secondly, your steadfast love. This is that covenant love that chesed love, the love of will, the love of choice, the, the love that acts upon somebody who is unworthy. And then he says also, according to your abundant mercy. That perhaps is not the best translation because here it communicates in the original language a passionate love, a vibrant love, a, a love of desire. Isn't it amazing to consider that the God of the universe desires us, pursues us in love, and so because of his mercy, his grace, because of his, will of, uh, because of his love of his will, and because of the passionate love he has for us, he is willing to blot out and to wash, to cleanse, and to restore all of your transgressions, your iniquities, and your sins. Now David was writing that in a time when his religious system was such that he knew deep in his heart it wouldn't actually be able to accomplish that. David is writing at a time when the only way to be made right with God was to bring an animal and to kill an animal 
And he knew deep inside that what he was longing for here in his restored relationship with God after this horrible sin that he had committed could never actually be made right simply by killing an animal. And so David writes this in the hope that one day everything that he did in his religious services, which he knew would make him right with God, but knew wasn't ultimately enough, would somehow, some way in the future be made right, that a sacrifice would come that would retroactively cover all of those sins that had been temporarily covered and would be right for everybody going forward so there would only be one place to look for, for redemption, grace, and forgiveness. Well, that happened when Christ came. That happened when, out of David's line, the Messiah came, was sent by God to come and to fulfill everything the law demanded, to die the death that every sinner should have died, and then to rise again to prove that he had conquered sin and death and hell and that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. And what the author to the Hebrews is doing is desperately trying to persuade Christians and professing Christians not to go back to the old, dead, religious system. And by the time we get in to Romans chapter 9, 11 to 28, we're going to see here the second in our three-part series. The series is called Christ Our Substitute. The first sermon last week was called A Perfect Conscience. We discussed what it means for Christ to purify your conscience. And today we're going to talk about the perfect presence. The perfect presence. So take a look, at, you will, at Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. And there are really three points in the sermon today. We're going to look at the redemption, the inheritance, and the salvation. The redemption, the inheritance, and the salvation. We're going to see ultimately that this is redemption by his blood, the inheritance by his covenant, and the salvation that comes by his sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We can stop there for the moment. Notice here that under this heading of the redemption by his blood, we see that Christ has come on the scene, and he has come on the scene as the high priest, the one who is bringing these good things. He came bearing the good news of the good things, of the perfect things, of the things that are now going to be found in him that all the other things pointed to. And then through this greater and more perfect, a word that means complete, tent, he was able to enter once and for all into the holy places. I want you to notice here for a moment the word tent. Uh, the word tent there is the, the word for tabernacle. It's the word for dwelling place. And he's making a reference to the old tabernacle or even the old temple. It's the place where people would go and they would offer these sacrifices. And what the author is saying is that when Christ came and when Christ offered himself up as the perfect sacrifice, he did so by then entering into the perfect or the complete tent. Not the one made with hands, not of his creation, but he entered into the holy, eternal, heavenly, ultimate tent. 
And what this means is that the tent that was created on earth was a shadow. The tent that was created on earth was a copy. It was meant to resemble what was actually real in heaven. And so whenever you heard a reference to the temple or the tabernacle, it was designed in such a way and very carefully to represent what was actually real in heaven. And the author is saying that Christ's sacrifice was so much better that he didn't have to enter into a physical tent because he entered at the ascension into the most holy place. And he did so, notice, not by means of, stop there for a moment, not by means of, the word means of, it's the, uh, the way in which it was done. You see, in the old covenant, what you would do is you would kill an animal, and that was your entry in. Uh, by the blood of that animal that you had laid your hands on and had become your surrogate, the one who had become your replacement, your substitute, you put your hand on that animal, you essentially conveyed your sin to him symbolically, and that animal was killed, and by the blood of that animal, it became your key, it became your ticket. You weren't able to enter into the presence of God. You couldn't access those areas without something that would make it so that you were not killed. And what we see here is that Jesus does not bring the blood of an animal. That's not his ticket. That's not the key. What does he bring? He brings his own. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And when he did that, he secured an eternal redemption. This is a new and a better redemption. Now let's ask the question of the text. Was the redemption that the old covenant Jewish believer, was that covenant that they received adequate to forgive their sins? The answer is yes. God established a way that by faith they could have their sins forgiven. It means that when they went to the temple or when they went to the uh, uh, tent of meeting, when, when, when they went to that tabernacle, even in the midst of the wilderness area where they were camping out, and they offered that animal, and they gave it to the priest, and the priest sprinkled the blood on the altar, that they were actually made right with God. They knew that. They believed it. Now, they didn't doubt the fact that because God had told them to go through this process that they weren't forgiven. But they also knew that the scriptures were clear that there is no way that this animal, which had no will of its own, could actually lay down its life on behalf of somebody else. The the animal couldn't live a holy life. The animal, at best, was this substitute. And so while they knew they were right with God, there was always this lingering, nagging doubt as to how the actual transaction would one day be accomplished. And so, verse 13 continues the story. It says very clearly, for the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. He is saying in verse 13, you were sanctified in the flesh. You were made right before God in terms of your obedience to him. If you did everything you were supposed to do according to Numbers chapter 19, and you took this animal, this heifer, which is a female uh, cow that, that had never been pregnant, that was of a certain kind, it was a red cow, and they were very particular about these cows. Like, you, you had to look around, you couldn't have more than two black hairs anywhere on this cow. Cow's a big animal. Cows have lots of hairs. And they would meticulously look over this cow. It had to be a very special animal. It had to be a certain age, it had to be a certain gender, it had to be a certain type. It couldn't have been used for anything else. No yoke could ever have been put upon it. And that animal was 
killed in a certain fashion and it was burned up outside the camp and then the ashes of this heifer were taken and they were mixed in with water. And two times during the course of a week, you were splashed with this special mixture as a way to purify you against the defilement that came to you because you touched a dead body. It was one of the ways in which you could be reintroduced uh, into society. Because remember, you were ceremonially unclean when you did something like touch a dead body. And the idea here is that when you went through this purification process, you were made right with God, you were made right with the community. But Christ came to offer an even better sacrifice. Look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, not through the death of a red heifer, through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is an astonishing statement. I want you to see the comparison here between the purification of the flesh and the purification of your conscience. The old covenant could at best purify you in the flesh and reintroduce you into society, but the death of Christ was able to purify your conscience. It was able to purify your soul. In fact, Hebrews 13, 13 is going to tell us that. If you look over there just a couple of pages, it says very clearly, that therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. What's that allusion to? It's an allusion to this red heifer sacrifice. It was done outside the camp, just in the same way that Christ was taken outside of the city to be crucified. And what does this preserve you and purify you from? It says dead works in order to serve the living God. The imagery then of this red heifer is yet another foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Christ for believers' sin. The Lord Jesus himself was without blemish. He was sacrificed outside the camp. He was crucified. He was cursed. And just as the ashes of that red heifer would cleanse the people from the contamination of death, so the sacrifice of Christ will save us from the penalty and the corruption of death. Now, I want you to take a moment and look at what he says here about the works. He says, these are dead works. There is nothing that you can do to earn salvation. In fact, one of the great tragedies is that people who follow any other religion follow a religion that instructs them to do certain deeds or to avoid certain deeds in an effort to earn favor with God. And the main thrust of all of the book of Hebrews is that you have gone past that now. That is no longer your way of thinking. That is no longer the hope you have. It's not about stuff that you've done. It's amazing when you look back, even over church history, how so many times people have been trapped in religious systems that tell them that what they really need to do is certain good works, certain acts of penance, and in so doing, earn some kind of favor with God, pay down the debt somehow. I was reading earlier this week about one of the things that Martin Luther was so incredibly disturbed by when he looked at what was going on in the Roman Catholic Church before the Reformation. His benefactor, his patron, Frederick, was known for collecting what are called relics. Uh, these are supposed artifacts from church history that theoretically, according to the Roman Catholic 
church that if you were to go and you were to look at these relics and you were to pray in the presence of these relics and if you were to offer money and you were to pay these indulgences, you could work your way off years of purgatory. And his benefactor realized that he could make a lot of money and rebuild his family's wealth by selling entrance to view these relics. And tens of thousands of woefully confused and deceived people would go to this person's estate and witness these relics in the hopes of somehow earning favor with God. In fact, historians tell us that it began in about 1509 when there were 5,005 relics. It included, according to Frederick, one of the very thorns of the crown that had been on the head of Jesus Christ. And he was convinced by the Roman Catholic Church that he could tell people if they went there and they looked at these relics and they paid the proper price, they could shave 1,443 years off purgatory. And what happened was so many people came and they paid so much money that he began using the money that was being paid to him to view the relics to buy more relics. And between 1509 and 1520, the collection had grown to 19,013 relics. And these were supposedly things of this nature. It included a collection of the teeth of the saints. Of St. Jerome, he had one. Of St. Chrysostom, he had four. Of St. Bernard, he had six. Of St. Augustine, he had four. He also claims to have had four hairs of Mary, the mother of Jesus, three pieces of her cloak, four from her girdle, and seven from the veil sprinkled with blood of Christ. The relics of Christ included one piece from his swaddling clothes, 13 from his crib, one wisp of straw, one piece of the gold that was brought from the wise men, and three of the myrrh, one strand of Jesus' beard, one of the nails driven into his hands, one piece of bread eaten at the Last Supper, and one piece of the stone on which Jesus stood when he ascended into heaven, and one twig of Moses' burning bush." And as long as you made the pilgrimage, and as long as you viewed the relics and showed reverence for the relics, and as long as you paid the price that the priest told you to pay, according to their calculations, you were able to shave off 1,902,202 years and 270 days from purgatory. And what you witnessed was a group of people that were so utterly deceived and so utterly hopelessly convinced that somehow this was true, that they were willing to impoverish themselves in an effort to not only get years off their own purgatory, to try to do that for others as well. You see, the gospel is no more horribly perverted and distorted then when it goes from something offered from God free of charge to something offered by men for a price. And what the author to the Hebrews is imploring his readers to understand, and what I am imploring you to understand, is that the situation hasn't changed. You see, for the, for the Hebrews, it was a temptation to go back to the Mosaic law, to the ceremonial law, to the civil law, for, for the Roman Catholics before the Protestant Reformation, it was, it was a temptation to believe what they were being told. 
And for us today, it's a temptation to go back into some system of works that we think will impress God. Now, before we take that to an extreme where you suddenly say, well, great, then I guess the answer is I don't have to even care one bit about how I live. Let me offer this as a correction. Please notice what the author says to clarify. You need to be purified from the dead works to serve the living God. Oh, yes, there is still a service to the living God. The word serve here is the word that we get liturgy from. It's literally to serve in terms of worshiping Him. It is to worship the living God with your life. And so my question to you this morning, brothers and sisters, is do you believe this? Do you see the perfection of His redemption? Do you see that when you serve, it is not in order to impress Him or to earn something from Him, but rather to simply glorify Him and to thank Him? Can you let go of your dead works, which will do nothing more for you in the final judgment than if you had made a pilgrimage to Germany to look at the straw that was in Jesus' manger? And it might seem easy for us to almost mockingly consider how absurd it would be for someone to think that that would do anything for them in the eyes of God, and yet walk out from here and beginning at about five minutes after 12, start doing the very same kind of thing to impress God and to make Him love us more. You see, the reality is nothing that you do will ever make you presentable before God. There is perhaps a no more vivid example of this than in the minor prophets. And if you wish to turn and to look at this, you can. It's in Zechariah. It's one of the last of the minor prophets. Zechariah. And Zechariah has a vision in chapter 3. And this is what it's of. Zechariah chapter 3. You can turn there if you'd like or you can just listen as I read. But let me give you some context. Zechariah has a vision of the high priest. The high priest, a man named Joshua... Same name, by the way, as Jesus. Jesus is just the other version of the word Joshua. means to save. And this man is, is seen, the vision of him coming before God, acting as the high priest. The context is likely the Day of Atonement. We see that in Leviticus 16. Uh, this is when the high priest goes before God to make atonement for the sins of the people. And Zechariah has the most disturbing vision imaginable. And I wish to tell you here, as I, as I prepare to read this, that there's very, almost no way for me to communicate to you how graphic the language is here. In fact, for me to be able to communicate accurately the graphic nature of the language so that you would hear it the way that a Hebrew reader would have heard it originally would cause me to say some words that would be so inappropriate that you would be utterly and completely shocked. You probably wouldn't be able to concentrate for the rest of the sermon. And, and, and I don't say that to be funny. I say that to tell you it's so incredibly perverse, the, the, the nature of what Zechariah is seeing, that I just am asking you to imagine the most disgusting and defiling thing that you can possibly comprehend and project that onto the subject of this chapter. Because what we read is this. Zechariah chapter 3, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Just pause there for a moment. How would you like to stand before the holy God of the universe 
And far be it from you to be able to explain yourself, but imagine that Satan is right there beside who has known everything you've ever done, and he is there on a mission to accuse you in front of a holy God. Your conscience would be enough to accuse you, but now you've got Satan, a being of such glory and power that he thought himself to be able to take over the position of God himself, standing with full knowledge of everything you have done, prepared, armed, ready to throw every accusation against you in the eyes of a holy God. He's ready. He's waiting. He knows everything. That's the image. That's the picture. Satan is standing there, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, and here it is, clothed with filthy garments. Utterly and completely revolting. Beyond anything we could possibly imagine. And imagine the shock of Zechariah who says, no, 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 this is the moment, this is the day of atonement, this is when the priest is supposed to cleanse himself and wear new pure robes and keep himself away from any defiling influence for seven days so that he could purify himself and then come and purify us. If he is not right before God, we have no hope. And not only is he not right, he is everything wrong. And Zechariah is shocked utterly disturbed by this. It seems hopeless. But then verse 4, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So he put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Beloved, this is the picture that I want to leave with you. We are like Joshua, standing before the Lord with nothing to offer but the defiled condition of our own good works. And not just the sins that we know we've committed and need to confess, but also, as one theologian said, the damnable good deeds that we put so much faith in. And it's not a matter of cleaning ourselves up to make ourselves acceptable. What you hear him saying to Joshua, if you're a believer today, he has said to you as well, which is remove the filthy garments from him, from her, and clothe them with the pure, righteous robes of Christ's holiness so that when the Father looks upon you, he doesn't see your deeds, he sees Christ's deeds. Absolute purity and perfection and holiness. You see, this is what real redemption means. Far more than a purification of the flesh, but a purification of the conscience. Redemption in his blood. Number two, inheritance in his covenant. Inheritance in his covenant. Look at verse 15 and following. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. This is a wonderful statement, isn't it? It is what is rightfully yours as heirs by birth. It is your family inheritance, your family rights. Jesus comes to mediate a new covenant, a new arrangement, so that all of you who are called, all of you that are chosen by him, receive everything that was promised to him in his inheritance. 
You are brought into the family and you are made an equal brother and sister with him. He goes on to say that since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He says there has been a death. And that death is what has opened up the door for those who would not normally be able to come into this family to be welcomed in. There's been a death in the family. And as a result of there being a death in the family, the will has come into action. You see, everybody is, who writes a will, is supposed to be dead before the will takes effect. You have to get a death certificate. You can't just say, well, I know what I'm entitled to in that will, and I would like to get it now. No court is going to hold that up. They're going to say, without a death, there is no will. Without a death, there is no transfer of property. Without a death, there is no way for us to activate what's in here. And so the author of the Hebrews is saying, there's been a death. And interestingly enough, it's the death of Christ that has made it possible for this inheritance to be transferred. Look at verse 16 and verse 17. For where a will is involved. Now that word will is the same word for covenant. Where there is a will, like a last will and testament. Where there is a will involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since there is not in force, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. That means, listen carefully, that there was this arrangement, a will, a contract, that God had made essentially within the Godhead this promised covenant of redemption. And this will was drafted up. But the will could not be put into effect for all of those who would be chosen to receive the blessing of it until the sacrifice had been made. Until the one who possessed all of it was dead. And so when the Father sends the Son, He sends the Son on a mission a mission that would include his own death to redeem the people who were chosen for him. But the method by which they were redeemed, the contract, the paperwork, the proof was that in his death, now they were welcomed into the family equal to him. And so what the writer to the Hebrews is celebrating here is the death of Christ, which seems so strange. Why would we celebrate that our Savior's dead? We celebrate the death of the Savior because without the death, there's no way we could inherit the riches of everything that he came to provide for us. Therefore, verse 18, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. There was a death in that one too. Death was needed. For... When every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God uh, commanded for you. We see this in Exodus 24. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's a pattern here. The pattern here that we see over and over again is this. Redemption, revelation, presence. Redemption, revelation, presence. Redemption is the rescue. Redemption is the act of grace. It brings you out of the land of Egypt. And God acts first upon us with grace, and then comes the revelation. In this case, it's the, it's the law. 
In this case, it's the revealed truth about himself. And then through that covenant comes presence, relationship. He brings them out of Egypt. He gives them his written law. And then he promises his abiding presence. Now, I do want to clarify for us a few things here. Remember, the original hearers would have known this very well. In fact, last week we mentioned how the author seems to be going quickly through this. He goes, I could say a lot more, but I don't need to. They would have understood exactly what was meant because they would have known Exodus 24. But there are some things in here that are probably oral tradition as well, because if you're a careful student of the Scriptures, you might notice that we don't have a record in the Torah of the idea that this water and scarlet wool and hyssop was sprinkled on both the book itself and all the people. Uh, There are some oral traditions that were handed down, but we believe them to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so he's giving us an account here of what went on back then, but the point is that the blood was sprinkled on everything. The blood set it apart. To be sanctified is to be set apart. They take the blood from an appropriate sacrifice. Uh, Hyssop was a branch, and they would sprinkle it. They would would throw the blood, and you'd be splattered with this blood. And that blood was a way of, of signaling that you had been set apart, that you had been especially designated as belonging to God. And remember these sacrifices, there were three kinds. There were burnt offerings, there were peace offerings, and there were sin offerings. Burnt offerings, described in Leviticus 1, that's when the whole animal got burned up. You'd bring the whole animal to the priest, the priest would kill the animal, they would divide up the animal, and they would put the whole thing on the altar, and it would be completely burned up and consumed. It was meant to symbolize that you were giving up this entire thing to the Lord, total abandonment. And then you had some other sacrifices, for example, peace offerings. Those peace offerings, a certain part of the animal was sacrificed, and that was meant to bring peace back to you and others and you and God, Leviticus 3. And then there were sin offerings. The sin offerings were those that dealt with atonement in Leviticus 4. And each of those, whether it was the burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, they were all given as part of that covenant with God, saying that if you will do these things, I will in turn give to you the inheritance that comes from being one of my children. So we've seen the redemption by his blood, the inheritance by his covenant. Thirdly, and finally for this morning, the salvation that comes by his sacrifice. If you allow your eyes to fall down to verse 28, the main purpose of the section ends with this, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What's the purpose of this whole section in Hebrews? It is to tell you that salvation is coming. Salvation is coming, and it's coming with all authenticity, with all legitimacy, because of the sacrifice that was offered. Verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Let's explain what this means. The... um, original tent and tabernacle and temple, all of those instruments, all of those pieces of furniture, all of that construction was designed as a picture of what the heavenly realm was like. What it means is that when God gives this specific instruction to Moses on how to build it, he is giving him essentially a window in to what it's like in heaven where God dwells. And he says, I want you to provide a copy of that down here so that you can see what's going on and you can visualize it and you can better understand it. And the author is saying that it was necessary for these copies to be purified, for them to be sanctified with blood, 
but how much more the heavenly things with a better sacrifice. Who was the sacrifice? It was Christ himself. Look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now, to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Beloved, isn't that a wonderful thought? That your great high priest, the Son of God, the Holy One, has laid down his own life and brings his own blood, not into a temple made with hands, but into the very temple, the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells in heaven, and he goes there into the presence of God on our behalf. He's doing it for you. You don't need to figure out how you're going to do it for yourself. He is the advocate. He is the mediator. He is the one who has gone before us. He, he is the one who's been the substitute. You don't need to worry about it. It's not you who's ever going to have to figure out a way to make yourself eligible to stand before a holy God because you've already been chosen in Christ, clothed in his righteousness, invited to the Father because of what he has done through the Son. Verse 25 says, nor was it, you could say literally, nor in order that, it was to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. He wasn't going to do this over and over again. You see, the, the high priest had to go in every single year. And in fact, we read earlier in Hebrews that you had to keep getting new high priests because the old ones kept dying. You had not only was the, the sacrifice not sufficient, but the priest himself was not sufficient. He kept dying off and we had to get a new one every few years. And here the great contrast is made. He said what Christ did, he is never going to offer himself again. He did it once and for all. There is no repeated sacrifice of Christ. He is not to be crucified over and over again. It was once and for all. It's over. It's finished. He wouldn't have to suffer repeatedly. Because if it wasn't sufficient, then he would have to repeatedly suffer since the foundation of the world with every elect sinner who comes to faith in Christ, he would have to then be re-crucified in order that their penalty would be paid in full. No, once and for all it was paid to cover retroactively all who had put their faith in the system that he had set up that pointed to him and then going forward to pay for the sins of all who would believe in the future, every sin, past, present, and future. But as it is, he writes, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's put it away. There's no need to bring another sacrifice. What does this give us? Let me offer you four, just by way of application here. Four things that I think we are able to say with certainty come from this, from his sacrifice. Number one is security. You see, there was great safety found under the blood, under the blood of the sacrifice. I go back to the original example of this, which was the Passover. Remember, instruction was given to each of the people before they were to leave, that they would take the animal, they would sacrifice the animal, and they would spread the blood on the doorposts. And that was given to everybody, every Egyptian and every Jew. Have you ever thought for a moment, what if one of the Egyptians had put the blood on the doorpost? Would the angel of death have passed over the home of that Egyptian? Yes, he would have. What about a Jew 
who didn't think this was really necessary because after all, he was one of God's people. He had the ethnic you know, rights to all of this. And he decided that it was a bit too inconvenient and he would not put the blood over the doorpost. Did the angel pass over that home? No. You see, it, it was the act of faith. And what you see is that there is great safety and security under the blood. When one acts according to what God has commanded and comes under the blood of the substitute, there is great safety there. Number two, there is great satisfaction. God's wrath is satisfied. He saw that the work was done. His anger was assuaged. The word that we have in the scriptures for propitiation. It's a word that means to be fully satisfied. It's that the wrath of God was aimed at the people, and when he saw that the blood was there, it was gone. Let me give you an example of this. Um, Have you ever given somebody an instruction, maybe um, a worker of yours or maybe one of your children, and and you're very clear, like, you you must do this. This is non-negotiable. I am not joking. Before I come back, I want this work done. And you arrive on the scene, and every indication is that that work is not done. Uh, You are convinced that they have ignored your command. This employee or this child has disobeyed you, and that anger begins to stir up. Have you ever experienced that? And in your mind, you're already imagining how this confrontation is going to go. You're going to go around the corner, you're going to see the job is not done, and you're going to hear another one of those lame excuses about how they forgot or how they didn't have the right equipment and you're ready to have the argument because you've already begun having it in your mind. Some of you know what this is like. Some of you have long arguments with people that are completely imaginary because you you imagine how they're going to respond and you're going to respond and the whole fight gets played out before you've even seen them. And you're ready to get involved in this confrontation and this rebuke and you go around the corner and the work is done. And all of a sudden, all of that anger all of that pent-up rage, all of that made-up stuff that's working inside of you, it just, what? It melts away. Just gone. And then usually you feel pretty guilty. You're like, oh, I shouldn't have thought worse of them. Here it is, you know. I I asked him to do it. He said he would do it. I I was sure he wouldn't do it. I come home, and there it is. It's done. And I had in my imagination that it wouldn't be done, and now it's done. That's a tiny little glimpse of what it means to have the anger of the wrath of God completely assuaged when that sacrifice was made. He has a righteous wrath. The difference is we did not live up to his command. We were deserving of wrath. His fury and rage was coming towards us, and it was that blood of the sacrifice that made it so that he could say to us, you have obeyed perfectly. We knew we didn't, but he says you have obeyed perfectly because my son came and did it for you. And therefore, my anger is gone. And now, instead of anger, what I feel for you is the same love I feel for him, for his obedience. It brings great satisfaction. Number three, substitution. There is a prescribed sacrifice. We see this in the discussion about, in in Exodus 12, about the Passover lamb. There, There is a prescribed sacrifice. It is symbolic of sinlessness. That substitute comes in order to lay down its life for us. So there's great security in the blood, satisfaction from the wrath of God, a substitution from the righteous one, and then finally, salvation. There's an immediate deliverance from slavery and into freedom. There's great salvation. You see, you're no longer an object of God's wrath. You're you're no longer an object of your own endless desire to earn salvation. You are merely 
a recipient of the great free gift of salvation through Christ. And this is why he can wrap up the section in 27 and 28 with these words. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, just as man is guaranteed to die, just as there is death and judgment, he says that's going to be the basis for the following statement, the comparison, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Isn't it a glorious thought of ultimate salvation? That when Christ returns, he is going to return to judge the living and the dead. But when it comes to the ultimate eternal judgment, he is coming the second time, not to have to deal with the sin of those who have put their faith in him, because that's already done. It's already passed. It's already complete. He says, I'm not coming to deal with sin. Sin has been completely dealt with. All I need to do is to return and to rescue the ones who have already been saved. Why do we anticipate his return? Why do we pray for his return? It is because we know that in him we have already been purchased, we've already been saved, and we now only and eagerly await for him to come back and rescue us from the sin and death and hell that his death has secured for us. That is why we can say, as the author does in the book of Revelation, so come Lord Jesus, because no one else can wish that unless they know that their sins have been completely dealt with and that they are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for that truth and uh, so many things that we could say about this, so many more comments that we could make and yet sufficient for today is what we've studied and I ask that you would impress upon us and upon our hearts and our minds the infinite weight of the reality of these statements. I know it's difficult for us sometimes to relate especially to what these Jews would have known because of their religious upbringing but I pray that you would help us to overcome that that cultural difference and that we could appreciate not only what they may have been tempted to do to earn your favor, but what we are tempted to do to earn your favor. Oh Lord, far from being a people that abandon righteousness and abandon holiness and abandon a desire to grow in our thankful obedience to you, I pray that we would be a people, a church, absolutely committed to putting to death the sin that so easily ensnares us, to hating our sin, to hating the ways in which we so often are tempted to go back to the old ways that never proved helpful to us. But as that struggle continues, I pray that you would grow us day by day more into the image of your Son, from faith to faith, maturity to maturity, that we would be able more and more to cast aside the fleeting pleasures of sin in order that we might be able to embrace and produce the fruit of the Spirit for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.